Hey, good morning, church. Wow, there's a lot of you in here. There's a lot of us. There's a lot happening here. And Alex, he's had some coffee. Right? I, I like that. I like that. That's me on donuts, right? That's how that works. Uh, hey, so glad you're here. My name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you and your family. And if you're new, this is a great time to be at Faith Covenant Church because we're only on episode three of season one of our Netflix miniseries, <laughs> The Gospel according to Genesis. If you've got your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. You're going to need it every Sunday. Come with your Bible. That's our church, right? Genesis chapter 3, we're going to spend some time. If you're new, when we were in Genesis chapter 1 just a couple weeks ago, we saw the power and the wonder and the awe of our majestic, plural, triune, sovereign, creator God, Elohim. A God who created um, every mountain and valley, who created every stream, every lake, uh, every moon, every star, every sunrise. We, we, we saw a God who created every creature that walks the land, that swims in the ocean, that flies in the air. We saw a God who created so many amazing things, and we learned that he did it all for you. Because our God needed nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. He, he was in need or want of nothing. He made it all for you. And when he made the sun, the moon, and the stars, when he made the platypus, when he made the hippopotamus, when he made the mountains and the valley, it was good. But when he made you, he said, it's really, really good. He said, it's very good. And last week in episode two, we saw the, the crowning moment of creation. The first uh, episode, we saw a chronologic account. Last week, we saw a thematic account of our God who made mankind with his own hands. And he did it in a very, very personal way. We saw that he made us image bearers of himself. And he did it with care. He did it with intimacy. In fact, his name changed a little bit from Elohim to Yahweh, which means personal and with you and about you and caring for you, God. And he looked at you and he declared that you have great worth. He looked at you and said, you have great dignity as an image bearer of the Almighty. You have great value. And if I were to hold up this $100 bill from my Monopoly set at home, and I said, who in this room wants the $100 bill? No hands would go up. And the question is, why? Because you say, because it's not worth anything. And if I look back at you and said, no, I now declare that it's worth something. I declare. Kevin declares. So feel free to take it to the 7-Eleven up here. Walk inside. Buy whatever you want on me. Are you taking it? No, because I have no authority and power. But if I looked at you and said, what about this $100 bill? How many of you want, you have to see the hands are already going up. Like, I'll take that right there. Why? Because an authority or power who is greater than me declared that it has power. And so it is with your God. Our God has looked at you and has declared value upon you. See, this $100 bill, it's sort of very similar. If I were to take it and crumple it up, would you still want it? And you're like, uh-huh. If I threw it on the ground and stomped on it with my dirty shoes, would you want it? Uh-huh. 
If I spit on it, would you still want it? You're like, yeah. Why? Because a power and authority greater than me has says this is worth $100 today, and in 10 years from now, it's going to be worth $100. Our God has said no matter whether you're stepped on or, or beaten, broken, or whatever, you have value. Babies have value. Democrats and Republicans have value. Black, white, Latino, whatever socioeconomic class, Whatever disability, no, no disability, you have value and worth because it has been declared so by a holy, plural, majestic creator, Elohim Yahweh. That was episode two. And then we come to Genesis three. This past week, I was driving down 9th Street right by my house and on the side of the road, hit by a car was a dog. Yeah, I was like, oh. Drove a little further. There's a dead squirrel on the side of the road. Yeah, see, exactly. You, you're with me because the, the squirrels tease my dog. So you're like, eh. The dog, you're like, oh. The squirrel, you're like, eh. You know, right? But what if I told you I went a little further and there was a child on the side of the road? Yeah, all of a sudden, that's way different. Why is that? Because the child bears on their personhood the value, worth, and dignity that comes from one who has been created by God. That child is an image bearer, and it doesn't matter whether it was the Turkish genocide in World War I, it doesn't matter whether it was the Jewish Holocaust in World War II, it doesn't matter if it was the Rwandan genocide of the early to mid-90s, and it doesn't matter if it was slavery in the Jim Crow South, all of them were dehumanizing humanity. And all of these are the reflection of the root issue that finds its way all the way right back here in Genesis chapter 3. Where did all of these atrocities originate? Genesis chapter 3. Well, what about, Kevin, what about violence? What about pornography? Genesis chapter 3. Yeah, but Kevin, what about human trafficking, divorce, abuse, addiction? What about domestic violence or things like cancer or COVID? Genesis chapter 3. All of the heinous sins find their way back to Genesis chapter 3. But what about the docile sins? I didn't have one piece of cheesecake. I had three. Yes, you know, well, some of you drank your weight in eggnog last Christmas, right? That's, that's called gluttony, right? What, what about those sins? Genesis chapter 3, heinous or docile, every sin is traced back right here. The root is found in Genesis chapter 3. And the reality that's often overlooked in our world today, the lie that's being perpetrated is that the world is saying, you don't have an enemy, but your Bible says you very much do, and he is called Satan. He is called the devil. He is called the great accuser. He's called the deceiver, the adversary. He's called the evil one. He's got lots of names all throughout your Bible. Church, there has been an enemy from before the beginning of the world, and he will continue to be your enemy, mankind's enemy, all the way until the end, the end being Revelation 20, verse 10, where it says, And the devil who had deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And you're like, Kevin, how does all of this connect to Genesis 3? Well, if I were to ask you to turn to the very first recorded sin in your Bible, some of you would turn to Genesis chapter 3, and you would be wrong. 
That's the first sin when it comes to mankind. But the very first sin in your Bible is recorded in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. And if you go there, what you'll find is the fall of Satan. We see that Satan is a created angel, created by God. And he had this place of, of, of prestige, and he's in the, the presence of God, and he was chief among the angels of the time. Apparently, he was very attractive, too. And then he starts saying things like, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And so Satan says, hey, you know what? Hey, God, thanks for the privileged position, but you know what? I want your job. And God says, mm, yeah, no. He is offended by that. Imagine that. And so he, because he doesn't take kindly to that, Ezekiel 28 tells us that he's not only in Eden, he's been kicked out of heaven, but he's also in Eden. And he begins to make statements about, yes, I've been kicked out. Yes, I'm, I'm now in Eden. And so why do I share this? Because it brings light to an obscure passage in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus, like, like the Jesus, in case you're wondering, says, he replied, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. And without the proper context of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we miss it. Because here what we see is Jesus, like the pre-incarnate Jesus, actually watched Satan's fall from heaven. And it's recorded right here in these two passages. So heading into Genesis chapter 3, this is what we've got. This is the, the entrance into Genesis chapter 3. We've got Satan, the adversary, who wants to be God. At the very minimum, he wants to be like God, who's rejected from heaven due to his pride. He opposes God, but unfortunately for him, God is bigger, faster, stronger, tougher than him. And so he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, he gets punked, and he's out. I guess it's a Kevin translation, but you get the idea. And, and so what does Satan do? What does Satan do? Satan looks at all of creation. He looks at all of creation and says, what does God love the most? Was it the giraffe? No. Was it the trees, the mountains, or the stars? No. Who, who is it that bears the image of God? Man and woman. And so he says, I will target them. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, that serpent is Satan. How do we know that? Because he's referred to as the serpent in the garden in Revelation 12. And again, in Revelation chapter, chapter 20, it's actually in multiple places where it says the same line is used. The ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. So we know that's who's there. And, and it's the question we begin to notice is the serpent doesn't speak to Adam, he speaks to Eve. I don't know about you, I was taught growing off that I don't know where Adam was. He was someplace else. But that's not what you're going to see in just a moment. Adam's right there. But Satan chooses not to talk to Adam first. He goes to Eve. Why? Because one of them had first-hand information and one of them had second-hand information. 
Because if you look at what God commanded in chapter 2, God commanded it to Adam, and it was Adam's job to explain it to his wife. And he did apparently a terrible job with that explanation. Guys not communicating. Shocker, right? <laughs> From the garden, guys doing a terrible job communicating with their wife. The ladies are like, amen, preach. <laughs> Look at what Satan says. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You know what's interesting? In Genesis chapter 1, God's name is Elohim. Plural, triune, majestic God. But it's really, the, the essence of it is the force behind creation. It's, it's speaking to his power and his majesty. But when you get to Genesis chapter 2, Elohim, that name changes. They're now using Yahweh, which means personal, intimate, present God. When Satan speaks of God, which name do you think he uses? Elohim. Because Satan does not want mankind to believe that our God is personal and present and intimate and for you and with you. He wants you to think, oh, he's just a force of creation. He did something and is gone now. He doesn't care about you. None of that. That lie is still being used on you today. He wants you to believe that our God is not with you, that our God is not in you, that our God is not talking to you, is not available to you. He does not care for you. He is not present with you. Today, the lie still is you are on your own. And the church still lives like that. What a shame. And if you look at what Satan says, did God really say that they must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what you have is God has created an abundance of trees, all of which are fantastic. And he puts the two trees right in the middle so that they have to walk by every single thing that God has provided for them in order to stand in the middle and go, but what about that? And we do the same thing. God has provided and provided and provided, but it's not enough because I can't have that. And the deception is still true. We still are discontent. Look at verse 16. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what's, what's Satan doing here? He's taking God's word and twisting it. Does he do that anymore? Yeah, he does that all the time. And so for those of you who do not know the word of God, and you are dependent upon people like me to stick it in a pot and shove it in your mouth, you are in a dangerous, dangerous place. If you do not know the word of God, it's why I look at you. There is 400 of you at this church who are in groups that are reading your Bible every single day so that you can reject this lie. You can fight this battle. If you're not in God's word every day, this can happen to you. It's too easy. You're easy pickings. You're low-hanging fruit. And what Satan is going to do here, he's going he's to challenge three things about God. He's going to challenge God's word. He's going to challenge the justice of God. And he's going to challenge the love of God. 
He challenges the Word of God by twisting it, saying that God said you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden. That's not what he said. He said you can eat from anything you want and eat abundantly, eat freely. That one, no. That's significant because Satan is and was the deceiver. He's called the deceiver from the very beginning. And the first thing he does is he takes God's word and he twists it. But look at Eve's response to that. It's actually fascinating. Look at verse 2. It says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And I want you to notice the magnitude of her response. The first thing Eve does is Eve minimizes the freedom of God. God said, eat from any tree in the garden, and you may eat from it, and you can eat freely. She drops the freely part. There is great freedom found in God's word, if you know it. And she, she drops the freedom, so she minimizes God's freedom. She minimizes his abundant provision, and we do the same thing. The second thing she does is she lessens the consequences. It says, if you eat it, you will certainly die, meaning it's weird. It means you will die, die, is really what that means. It's, it's weird, because if you were to say that to your kids, it's like, I'm going to spank, spank you, I guess. But die, die means die, dead, dead, room temperature, flipped upside down, not breathing, nothing. <laughs> God uses a very, very specific word here to communicate its severity and its immediacy. She changes the word to a word that means you'll be in trouble. Interesting. There's, there's a big difference between I'm in trouble and like dead, dead. So she lessens the consequences. Third thing she does is she adds her own religion. See it? God said, don't eat it. For on the day that you eat it, you will certainly die, die. She says, don't eat it or what? Or even touch it. Yeah, so, so if eating it is wrong then touching it is equally as wrong, which means if premarital sex is wrong, then premarital dancing is just as wrong. We've done the same thing today. It's a sin that's been around from the beginning. She adds her own boundaries to it. And because of these three things, the serpent now comes after the justice of God. That's verse four. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. You're not gonna die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see the connection to what she's now being tempted with and what Satan was ejected from heaven for doing? Satan wanted to be like God, and what he's doing is he's throwing that same bait out in front of Eve, and so he does with you. He's baiting you to take it. Eve, he says, Eve, God is holding out on you. It's not, it's not fair that he's in charge of you. It's not fair that God knows more than you. Like, why should you die? That seems so harsh. He, he just doesn't want any competition, Eve. You can be God too. And he says the same thing in our world today. And Satan doesn't stop there. He continues by challenging the love of God as well by saying, God, God doesn't want what's best for you. He's got all these rules out there for you, Eve. And they're all in direct contradiction to everything that seems good, to everything that feels good. Don't listen to the word of God. That's not love. Follow your heart. That's love. Follow what, what you think. Make your own truth. That's love. Because if God really loved you, 
He would let you do whatever you feel is right. If he loved you, he would let you think whatever you think is right. But instead, God put those rules out there keeping you from doing this, the very things that I think you'd find very enjoyable, Eve. And probably even good for you. Can anybody relate to that? And so what Satan does, he challenges the word of God, the justice of God, and the love of God. And Satan still whispers the same things to God's beloved creation this very day. It's the same Satan using the same lies on the same people, still being incredibly effective in our day. Now in verse six, Eve, she makes a shift. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that's one, pleasing to the eye, that's two, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So here's her logic. Well, God created everything. And he created it all for us. And he put all these trees out there and he says, it's good, it's good. And then he looked at me and said that I'm very good. And so if he put all these trees out here, it's good. And I'm very good. Then therefore I can eat whatever I want because it's, it's gonna taste good to me physically. It's gonna be a delight to my eye. And it's gonna be a delight to my future and to my, and, and to my mind. It's gonna make me wise. In this moment though, She's no longer living under the obedience to God. She has moved and said, my human rationale trumps God's very word. My logic is, is better than God's word. Church, whenever we think we know better than God, we need to abort that mission right then and there because it's not gonna be pretty. It's not gonna be pretty. She replaces obedience with human reason so many times we read God's word and we're like no it can't mean that yes it does yes it does do it read it know it live it and I bet if we're gut level honest we do the same thing we buy into the lie from Satan that right and wrong is not driven by a divine standard but it's driven by human preference about what feels right, about what seems right, about what's culturally or politically accepted, about my personal opinion, and that becomes our authority. And as a result, this day or a day later on, it will never end up good. And so we have Adam and Eve created here in moral perfection completely. They're created completely sin-free right next to Satan, the father of all lies. They had an opportunity to choose and they chose to disobey God. They chose sin and so watch what happens. Look at the rest of verse six. It says, she also gave some fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I don't know about you, but growing up, what I thought was Adam was off at work. Like, and Eve was just tooling around the, the garden doing stuff and like Satan like snuck up on her, you know, like did this whole thing and like jumped out and said, whoa, and surprised her and just took the, jammed it in her mouth, you know. No, not at all. He's, he's right there. Verse six speaks to proximity. Adam's right there. And I mean, at what point does the biblical man read verse one and go, why doesn't Adam step forward at that moment and go, I don't know who you think you are. I don't know what you think you're doing. 
That is not, I know what God said. God said it to me. He didn't say it to you. He said it to me. That's not what God said. Get away from my wife. Like, where's that guy? Where does he step up in between them and protect her? But that's not what happened. Instead, Adam chooses to be the first spiritually passive man to not lead his family spiritually, and it has catastrophic consequences. And when you look at the church today, there's an epidemic in the church today that is far worse than COVID, far worse than cancer or the plague. It's an epidemic of passive, uninvolved, spiritually unengaged men, and it's killing our marriages and inoculating our churches. Because men are being drugged to church. Men are not serving in children's ministry, in, in youth ministry by and large. They've turned it over to females. They're not, the guys are unengaged, and they'll come if there's a promise of food after the service. That should not be. Satan's lie is still ripping through Christianity to this very day. And Adam is standing right there, and he says absolutely nothing. And he, in fact, he joins her in her disobedience. Church, from the beginning of time, sin consistently overpromises and underdelivers. It overpromises. One of the people in the back looked at me and says, I think right here Eve has buyer's remorse. I like that. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You can see the dual separation right there. They were promised that if you just reject God and do what you feel is right, you'll be like God. You, you don't need God. In fact, you can become your own God. Tell me that's not 2024. That was literally the very first temptation. And so she eats. And she gives it to him, and he eats. And I wonder how long they stood there waiting for it until all of a sudden they're like, What's that? You know, because that's what happened, right? Like, what's that? And they're like, ooh, hey, hey. I, I, you know, we start doing that kind of stuff, right? Because they're naked. They recognize that they were naked. And now what God has intended for holiness, what God is, has in, intended for holiness in terms of their physical intimacy at that moment, it's now perverted. That's what's happened. And so they cover themselves the first thing noticed is their relational separation. But as they hid from God, spiritual separation comes next. And I share that with you because it's still happening today. When you and I sin, it causes separation between one another. When I, when I raise my voice at my wife in my home, it causes separation in my home, just like the garden. When I raise my voice at my wife in my home, it causes separation between me and my God, just like the garden. The consequences today are exactly the same. Because the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And these people right here, they're experiencing a dual death, a spiritual death, which causes that separation. But also you're going to see that from dust, Adam was created, and to dust, he's going to return. 
And it's at this very moment that sin invades like the plagues of Egypt, just running in, invading every aspect of humanity. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, and so death spread to all because all, past tense, sinned in Adam. We're all connected to this original sin. It entered mankind. It's passed down through the DNA. Some people go, oh, but people are born good. They don't have toddlers, <laughs> right? Because I don't, I don't know of any parent anywhere who taught their toddler to be selfish. But their favorite word is, yeah, see, mine. Right? That's a, I don't know that we taught our toddlers to throw tantrums. But they do it well. I don't know that any of you, okay, son, let me teach you how to lie today. No, because it's hardwired in them. They get that hardwired. And that's not all the bad news. Get this, there is no human solution to sin. There's no human solution for this. You can read all the self-help books that you can find. You can go to a therapist. You can get a massage every month. You can see a chiropractor. You can think happy thoughts, wear crystals. You can go and do yoga in 110 degree temperatures in some salon someplace. You can do whatever you want. There is no human solution to the issue of sin, but there is a solution. It's just not a human one. Look at verse 9, because right here, God pursues. It says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Some of you are like, what? Where are you? I thought God was everywhere at once. He is. Well, I thought God knew everything. He is. Our moms have spidey senses, don't they? Yeah, it seems like moms, for some reason... God, the, the guy's answer most of the time is, where's your mother, right? And the mom's eyes, I know what you did. I don't know exactly what you did, but you were up to something today. I can see it. I can smell it. They just know. Like moms just sort of know. They have this sort of spidey sense. So God doesn't kind of know. God knows. He knew exactly where they are. God didn't need information. He needed honesty. That's the difference. He's not looking for information. He's looking for honesty. In verse 10, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And South, some of you are like, it's not naked, it's naked. That boy's naked, right? That's, what, that's how it sounds right here. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And he was like, um, I don't know, right? Because when parents, when you ask your kid a simple question, what you want back is a simple answer. I don't need a story. I ask you a simple question, give me a simple answer. So he gives a simple answer. He blames her. That's what he does. Hey God, hey God, if you had given me a better woman, I might not have had to deal with this issue. So God, it's your fault. And then you can almost see the wheel spinning stops and goes, actually... The woman you gave me. So maybe it's not, it's her fault, some, but it's your fault. You made her, not me. So God, this is your fault. Talk about not taking responsibility. It's verse 12. The man said, the woman, the one you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And she's like, I'm sorry, what? Me? 
not me, verse 13. The woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. It's not my fault either. It's Satan's fault. And it's at this moment that the flood of consequences, the floodgates open and the consequences just come flooding into the world. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, which is an interesting thought. Prior to this were serpents and snakes upright. Because the curse puts them on their belly. It says, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I don't know. It's just an interesting thought. So the first, the serpent's cursed. Second, the animal kingdom is cursed. The third curse, starting in verse 15, is human nature is now cursed. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and will strike his heel. So there's going to be a battle going on between Satan and Eve, this woman. And there's going to be strife between Eve's offspring, those who love God, and Satan, those who love themselves. And next week, I'm going to unpack the rest of that incredible verse about who that he actually is. It's the first mention of Jesus in your entire Bible. The fourth thing that's cursed now is the woman. The ladies in the room will understand this when we read it. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe, not severe, very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Three curses to the women right there. First one, apparently there was great discomfort. And I use the word discomfort as a dude in childbearing. Apparently it goes from, oh, that's uncomfortable to whoa right? That's how childbearing was spent, was supposed to be a beautiful, semi-pain-free thing. Not anymore. It's going to be nuts. And the curse is the woman will continue to want children, but know that the pain that will follow will be severe. I want kids, but crazy pain. I want crazy pain. And the third curse that goes with here goes around that word desire. Doesn't mean she's going to want kids. That's that's a don't don't misread it that way. It means that she's going to want. She's going to continually pursue the role in her marriage that comes from Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four, where they got married. That she's going to want and continually pursue the role in marriage that was not designed for her. Marriage has two roles of equal value, of equal worth. But there's a, a, a role designed for the male and a role designed for the female. But there's going to be conflict and tension around the role of spiritual leadership in the home because it's part of the curse. You're fighting the battle that came in because of the curse. The fifth and sixth curse will be man and creation itself. Verse 17 says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife, totally ignored what I told you. That's the indictment. And ate fruit from the tree about which I, your almighty, sovereign, personal, loving Yahweh, commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So if you ever wondered where from dust to dust came from, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. And so apparently, the curse is, you are going to work the ground. 
and it's not going to be easy. You are going to battle crabgrass for the rest of your life. You are going to battle nut edge, dandelions, and dollar weed, and you're going to pick it. You're going to hire companies to come to your house and spray your yard for, for weeds, and they're going to come back in 30 days. And you're going to make gardens and think they're beautiful, and, you will, and not only will you pick weeds and pick weeds and work the land, you're going to sweat doing it. Not a little bit, a lot of it. And you're going to stand up and go, why does my back hurt so much? My knees. And the next day, you're going to feel like you were in a boxing match. That's the curse from the very beginning. All these thorns and thistles, and with every one you pull, more is going to come up, and you're going to work the ground, and you're going to sweat doing it. But, and, and, and it's a big one, there is good news. The good news with creation, and there's good news with mankind, because we know that the gospel makes us new. We know that because we see the cross. So we know the gospel makes us new. We know that we're not trapped in our sin, but that Jesus takes my sin upon him, and he transfers to us his righteousness. That's the great exchange. I give you sin, um, you give me your righteousness. That's like I give you monopoly money, you give me a $100 bill, right? That's what happened. But listen to the words of Roman 8. Knowing the curse that happens after the fall, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. There is a lot of talk right now about preserving this earth. And I want to be clear. I believe I recycle. I think that's smart. I don't think we should use and abuse our planet. I, I think that's foolishness. I think we should talk about things like carbon emissions. I don't have a problem with that. But church, never forget that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on this earth, it's going to get a full-on upgrade, and it will be released from the curse that it's currently under. Your recycling is not going to fix the curse of the earth. Your, your, your carbon emissions is not going to fix. The upgrade comes from Jesus Christ. One day our coming king, he's going to make it all right again. And he is the only one that can make it all right again. So make no mistake that the effects of sin are catastrophic because sin will always take you further than you want to go. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to cost you more than you want to pay, and it's going to keep you longer than you want to stay. From verse 1 to the last verse of Revelation, that's the truth. A fallen humanity, a fallen world, a fallen creation, violence, death, decay, and yet mingled in the midst of all these curses is the very first mention of a he. A he that comes and restores it all, and that's next week. To bring it to a close, here's the rest of your chapter. Starting in verse 20. Adam named his Eve wife because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So the imagery surrounding the atonement there is amazing. The first sacrifice of something else for the sin of someone else. 
again next week. Verse 22, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Church, the only thing worse than being corrupted by sin and living every day looking for redemption is being corrupted by sin and living looking for redemption forever. It's not a punishment here. It's God's grace here. Could you imagine living under the curse of this world forever with no hope? No, so it's by his grace, verse 23, so the Lord God banishes him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he's been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 3 is clear that every sin issue we experience today can be traced back right here, which means sin is not an environmental issue. It's not. It's a human nature issue. It's a spiritual issue, which means you can have the best home on the planet and still have a jacked up kid. You can do everything right spiritually. You can be the best parent ever. And your kid can still go sideways. You can change society and make sure every place in the entire United States has the best schools, has the best parks, has the cleanest neighborhoods. You can have a believer in every single position of power and authority in the entire government and it not change because it's not an environmental issue. It's a spiritual issue. In church, Genesis 3 is clearly the rejection of God and the pursuit of human reason is still an issue. This very day, what we do is we turn up the volume of the world and we turn down the volume of God. Wait, do I know that? Biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. So what we've done is we've taken the word of God and spending time with him in prayer, we've minimized that and wonder why we can't hear him or see him. It's shocking. Because we do it because I want my wants, my preferences. Because then I enter sin and I act like I do it in ignorance. The game hasn't changed at all, which is why we must not live under the authority and practice of ourselves. There is a standard it's outside of me, it's always true, and I didn't write it. I didn't write it, so know it and practice it. And finally, Genesis 3 is clear. There is no human solution to sin. There is no self-help works you can do, no amount of behavior modification we can employ that's gonna deal with this deep-rooted sin issue in my life. There's only one thing that saves. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us while we were dead in our transgressions and sin, he made us alive because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That, my friends, is the only solution in episode three.